Hi everyone, thank you for listening today. My name is Jen Thorpe and I'm the editor of Living Well Feminist, which came out on the 30th of March on eBook. Um, our in-person launches were due to happen on the 15th of April and later in April in Johannesburg. Those have unfortunately been postponed um, because of lockdown. So we thought it would be good to share with you some of the delights that are contained in this book and we look forward to seeing your faces in person at the launches when they do happen. Um, today's episode is bringing you a huge selection of pieces. The book contains 50 new pieces of writing and I think we have 25 um, excerpts for you to listen to today so I hope you enjoy them. We've got some poetry, we've got some discussions of why the pieces were important and we have some reading of some of the pieces. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I enjoyed collating them and thank you to the writers for taking their time during this um, difficult, stressful, weird space age that we live in and I hope you enjoy. Hi, my name is Rilewone Reranzu e Africa, and I wrote the essay, A Salute to Sisterhood, on the Substance of Black Women's Silent Revolution. I'm going to read a little bit from it. Black women create hearths for us through their understanding, a luxury and an escape from the world. There are lessons that only they can teach me, lessons that the men I love and have loved certainly cannot share with me. What my sisters have taught me is that sisterhood gives us the ability to have vision, to see beyond ourselves. When I come home triggered by the many things that have potential to do so, black women get it. When all I can do is weep because the world is heavy within me, black women get it. When my small victory is celebrated as a big win, black women get it. Sisters are mentors, as I have been to my biological one and the ones I have adopted. They pour into the gaps our mothers didn't know how to fill. They give wisdom and guidance and love. They know how to help us navigate this current moment, or the one that follows, or the ones we will never have access to. Is sisterhood perfect? <laughs> Is anything? Is anyone? First of all, have you met men? The only reason why sisterhood is so scrutinized is because the world hates when women organize away from the male gaze. Men are allowed to hate each other without it being an indictment on the entire gender. There are no consequences to men's failure in relationships, and we all know those failures are many. In fact, most of the failures are mopped up by the women around them, who do the emotional labor of cleaning up their mess. The center of men's organizing is power, to keep it within. But the center of women's organizing, the whole point of it, is to lift a sister up, to create an escape, to further society. That is a different kind of power, but it is enduring and that matters too. Men don't have systems or a culture of accountability. They let each other off the hook and we're all worse off for it. I have failed many times at sisterhood and each time it made me a better friend and a better human being. It is natural for me as a human being to excel and to fail. It is the way of life. It is not the way exclusively of women. The psychology of patriarchy has conditioned women to be suspicious of each other, but it has not placed the same harsh standard upon men. Amongst women, it's bitchiness. Among men, healthy competition. It's sad that the culture of being a man in the world is a masculinity that is almost indistinguishable from misogyny. 
but more often than not. The culture of being a woman is sisterhood. Even when we aren't sophisticated enough to have the language and vocabulary to do that without participating in upholding patriarchy, our motivations are fueled by a desire to teach the other girl how to survive and thrive. Men are just trying to get ahead from, for themselves, to keep the old boys' club elite and hallowed. They've been taught that they're allowed to do that selfishly. They have a bro code unspoken yet well-known rules on how to perform masculinity, but it doesn't come close to a brotherhood. What's so irresistible about gangs is that young black boys find in them a safety, protection, and belonging that they didn't know they could have before. They find brotherhood, even at a cost. I saw myself briefly through the lens of his limited understanding. A hairy woman must equal feminist. I got it. Any girl who so fragrantly refused to pander to the smoothness required by the male gaze must be at least partially anti-men. I saw, too, that his now incomprehensible admiration had plucked at some core assumption in him, suggesting that this may in fact be the first time he had ever encountered a woman whose natural growth had been allowed to persist. By that stage, I knew better than to bring up the old, bushy European trope. I'd already been the odd one out in a German sauna, the waxing equivalent of dressing scary instead of sexy for Halloween. So I just looked at him for a moment, trying to decide if the meagre gains in sexual equality would be worth the intellectual equivalent of stripping off for a stranger. I'm Ananda Morris-Paver, and that was an extract from my mini-memoir, Feminism is the Pits. It's a piece about hair, what it means, who gets to grow it and where, inspired by a series of encounters I had with a curious Frenchman. I'm Amy Claire Smith and I wrote a poem called I Should Like to Wear My Sexuality. I should like to wear my sexuality around my neck and shoulders like a luscious scarf. I should like to put it on the mantle like a decorative vase. I should like to stir it into my coffee, tie it with a bow around my head, on my wrist. I should like to tell you about it, as if it were a book I'd read recently, a dream I'd had, a good home-cooked meal, a painting in a frame on the white, white wall of a museum. I should like to be able to say the word sex and not feel as though I were swearing. I should like to be able to say the word sex and not see you flinch, Grimace, raise your eyebrows, widen your eyes. I should like to not be ashamed, to not wear leggings to cover up the calico of bruises and teeth marks in my inner thighs, to not have to say, I slept late, when what I mean is, we crawled into bed together, I kissed him behind his ear, he slid his hand up my back. I should like to not be ashamed. You raised me to see sex as something that is done in dark rooms, Something that is given up, covered up, something unsafe, like a mugging, like a dirty kitchen, like a knife with a blackened blade. But what about spontaneous afternoon sex on white bed sheets crisscrossed with squares of early winter sun? What about sex that is like a sweet mango smoothie, like a thousand bells in the wind, like creamed latte, like sitting down with a good novel, like white wine and ice on a summer afternoon? I should like to wear my sexuality like a pair of big funky earrings, to carry it like a red umbrella. 
I should like to not be ashamed. My name is Sandy Siwe and I wrote an essay called I'm Not Your Mama. Um, okay, so this is an excerpt from the essay. How black girls are sexualized quite early is well known and widely discussed. We've read countless tales about older men trying to seduce younger black girls and then claiming that they assumed they were older when caught. Some of us even have our own battle scars and horror stories about how men we thought of as uncles or were suddenly annoyed when we addressed them appropriately, even as they attempted to make their moves. Given how most of us have lived through this, while the sexualization of black girls disappoints and enrages us, it is neither new nor uncommon and therefore hardly surprises us. Fast forward to adulthood, where black women are now older, bolder, with bargaining power as well as agency. These are all aspects that enable us to speak out against injustice with very little fear. However, I observe a new attitude, the quickened aging of young black women into Omama. I recently noticed how men, granted mostly blue collar, call me mama or me, terms usually meant as a sign of respect. As a black as a black woman, I'm well acquainted with these terms and the attitude with which they're usually used. While I knew that these terms are usually meant as a form of honor, it surprised me that I, f- I felt neither respected nor honored. On the contrary, I felt disrespected. After weeks of introspecting and multiple conversations with friends, it dawned on me why these terms have come to nauseate me. It isn't so much the title that grates my cheese, but what I perceive to be the reason behind their use. My name is Karen Shimka. I'm a poet and a journalist. I'm going to be reading you a few paragraphs extracted from my essay entitled Change. I think of it as the uglification this unglamorous transformation called menopause, which until recently has been a concept out on the far edge of some distant tomorrow. I wake up drenched in sweat. It's morning. We're on holiday. My partner and I make languid holiday love, and in the silence afterwards, lying bunched and entwined together like hurriedly discarded clothing, A tear surprises me by falling straight out of the side of my eye and running into my ear. Lying there, I know it will be mere minutes before I have to extricate myself from his limbs in an emergency of heat. I've had one or two fiery moments before, during perimenopause, but I haven't had a period for four months, not since six weeks of non-stop bleeding that finally required a pill to make it stop. Now I'm waking up several times a night from dreams in which someone is standing too close to a fire or someone has got sunburned. Six months of no periods. That's the cut of time. No periods for six months when you're over 40 and you are officially menopausal. I'm crossing a threshold and I'm being borne over it on a lava wave so intense it feels like the world is a conflagration of youth burning. You know when you light a gas stove and you hold a match to the gas and it makes that sound like thwomp and there's instant heat? It's like that, I tell my partner. He says, that's exactly the sound you make when you throw the duvet off in the night. 
I can barely stand being touched. I feel hot. I feel ugly. One day I take a book from my shelf called Goddesses in Older Women. I'm after the sex goddess. I want to know what happens to Aphrodite in old age. I want to know whether her sizzle returns when the heat subsides. Aphrodite is a vision carrier, a muse, a change agent, a mentor, a teacher, I read. I am not ready to teach and mentor and muse anyone. There is still so much that I need to read and think and write and do. But more than half my life is gone. And I wouldn't even have noticed if my sex life hadn't got all up in my face. I'm Christine Coates and I wrote the poem A Moment at the Bus Stop about an incident when I was a young student in Johannesburg. A moment at the bus stop. The brown and orange floral top clinging to my body. It's 1972 and I'm waiting for the red Johannesburg bus from Linden to Bramfontein that journeys down sweeping curves up the Melville Corpies, Empire Road. Cityscapes that dreams expand. The cold concrete buildings, lost parking basements. A car stops opposite me. A man leans out. Do you open your legs, he says. He says it again. Is it what I'm wearing? My cheeks burn all day. My name is Mishimo Madima, and I'm very excited to have written the chapter titled It's Not Just Hair. I'll be reading a piece from it. I'm getting my afro plaited and the hairstylist doing it seems to have no regard for the seven-year-old her hands are yanking. I sit still though. From those first forced ponytails I received as a toddler, I learned early that moving around makes things worse and can ruin the end product. Tears are running out of my eyes, but... Beauty is pain, she comforts me. This is one of the cardinal rules of black hair. You remember it when the relaxer is burning your scalp and sit a little longer so your hair can heal. And when the straight back cornrows give you an instant facelift, even though you can't sleep that night because of the pain of laying your head on the pillow. You remember it when the weave itches so much, you're using a stick to scratch your scalp. You remember it the day you're first surrounded by three pairs of Maasai legs and you're about to have a panic attack because you're locked in and there are six hands simultaneously pulling your scalp in different directions. In a world that considers beauty as a woman's most valuable asset, being beautiful can take the same amount of grit, tears and frustration as a nine to five. We go to great lengths to look the part, even to the detriment of our scalps and hairlines. Then they are the cues. Nothing beats the home affairs cue, but when it comes to equalizing spaces, waiting for a good hairstylist comes pretty close. It doesn't matter where you come from, how much you earn, or even whose wedding you're rushing to. It's first come, first served. The salon next door may be cheaper and faster, but your hair simply can't afford cheating on your stylist. So, you wait.
I am Alice Draper, and I am reading an excerpt from my piece, titled, Shaving. My mother's face hardened as her eyes assessed my hairless legs. Her disapproving comments annoyed me immensely. All the girls in my school were starting to shave. Why should I be any different? My mother, an orthodox feminist, disapproved of most feminine beauty practices like makeup, hair straighteners, and body hair removal. In contrast, I obsessed over my physical appearance. I wanted long, straight hair, fancy makeup, and a hairless body. The day I got my legs waxed felt empowering. I was claiming agency as a woman. I found my mother's stance on body hair radical and strange. My realm of information, consisting of the media, friends, teachers, and strangers, all told me I should remove my body hair. This wasn't something to talk about or contest. It just was. Feminist theorists explain that heterosexuality is constructed from a masculine viewpoint. A term used to describe this is the male gaze. This suggests that the identity of woman is constructed in a hypersexualized and objectified way for the benefits of male consumption, while the identity of men is seen as more complex and not oriented at being observed. Ideas of what a suitable or good woman looks like are constructed in many ways and often influenced by the media. As a result, many women have a male on the head that prevents them from claiming and creating their identity on their own terms. Reflecting on this made me wonder how much of the decision to remove body hair was mine. I thought I was making an act of choice, and at a physical level, I was. I was paying someone to wax my legs and buying razors to continue the practice. It's not hard to see why a 12-year-old whose mom told her to leave her body alone would find the act of hair removal profound. As I got older, my thoughts about the practice started to shift. Hair removal is time-consuming, expensive, and often painful. The novelty wore off, and it became a hassle. That being said, the option of not removing my body hair didn't cross my mind for a long time. It is interesting that I felt removing my body hair was an empowering choice. Yet, once I ascribed to the practice, I no longer felt I had a choice. I remember, when I was 15, a girl in my school hadn't shaved her underarms. This was discovered by my classmates during a swimming lesson. The mere presence of her body hair made her the subject of jokes and ridicule. To me, she was also a warning, one of many, conform or else. Another friend lost her virginity to a boy. She hadn't shaved her pubic area. The boy shared this information with all of his friends. Eventually, the most intimate parts of my friend's life became public knowledge. I am Amelia Gavinder, and I wrote a poem titled, Me. Brown girl, brown woman, when will they see me? Past the brown and look at the woman. See the human, that's all I desire, to be a being. The story behind my poem, me, while I use poetry as a way to process and express emotion, my poems are a part of me, but not necessarily about me. This poem, me, was inspired by campaigns like me too, time's up, 
and Am I Next? There is a war against women and children and women are being dehumanized. Me is my voice, my language. The silence ends. Hi, my name is Desran Martin, and I contributed an essay to Living Well Feminist entitled No One Tells You, and I'm going to be reading an excerpt from that essay right now. They don't tell you that you will experience unbearable loss, grapple with unanticipated change, or that you may die many soul deaths from unspeakable trauma. They don't tell you that there is no life without trauma and that trauma itself is a pervasive, unavoidable part of living. No one tells you that you will chew on unpalatable emotions, unable to digest them, that the rotting chunks of sadness and hurt will remain lodged in your throat, rendering you unable to speak your truth, or that the acrid feelings will burn a hole in your stomach forcing verbal bile to rise up and choke you. No one tells you that childhood can be like playing with shiny shards of glass or that adolescence feels like a psychotic breakdown. No one tells you that you will hand numerous people your heart and then watch helplessly as it is crushed and cracked by the cruel, the selfish or those with fractured hearts themselves. They don't tell you that life is a hand-to-mouth emotional existence. They don't tell you that human life and loss will always find expression, even if it is destructive. They don't tell you that our heroes and demons can be one and the same, but in a different guise. I'm Carla Watson, and I wrote a short essay titled Scab, and I'd like to read you a short extract. I only just managed to read the first chapter of Haji Mohammed Davia's Sorry Not Sorry, cheekily titled, We Don't Really Write What We Like. And as I read, the word flashing through my head was scab, or rather a voice screaming at me, you are a scab. I was suddenly cold and confused by this noise in my head and I needed to stay into nothing for about 15 minutes. I was apprehensive about reading this book. Actually, I was shit scared. I was afraid I would find parts of myself on the page, parts I'd worked so hard to bury in order to survive society. Perhaps what I was more afraid of was marinating in my anger. And even now, I'm afraid of carrying the struggle which Davio points out. The struggle to either heal my pain or let it blind any glimpse of restorative justice in my country. I'm afraid the very healing I work so hard for will mutate into justified anger, pain and revenge. How do I untangle all that I feel and experience every fucking day while remaining shackled to this responsibility of not flipping the fuck out and becoming a trend on Twitter? 
How do I instead restore, heal, and work towards mending our broken society? And also, why is this my responsibility? There are many questions raised in Davi's first chapter. Its concluding question, though, is the culprit as to why I jumped out of bed and sat behind my computer. In the last chapter's moments, Davi asks, why does it piss white people off so much when brown people are happy? And this question left me shook. It irritated my scabs. Shaking up feelings I'd covered up for so long. And when I thought about these feelings, three things came to mind that I realized that brown people are not allowed to do around white people. Even if it brings them a sense of peace in expressing themselves. Hi, this is Kerry Hamilton. I'm a poet and writer. The piece that I have in the anthology Living While Feminist is called What She Wants and is part of a series of longer prose poems, prose pieces and other poems. What She Wants It's easy to want the things you're supposed to want. 2.5 children, a successful job in an office or being a stay-at-home mom, evening walks on the beach, a retirement fund a well-designed house, children at private schools, the latest series on Netflix, coffee with your girlfriends to complain about the children and your husband, of course, a husband, a husband who loves you, a healthy breakfast, up-to-date fashion, one glass of wine at night. But what about the things you're not supposed to want? The thin edge of a sharp blade, An extra-large pizza to be eaten alone in one sitting. Sex with someone else's husband. A whole bar of extra dark chocolate eaten for supper. Ram your car into the bitch who stole your parking. Sucking marrow from cracked bones. Sex with someone else's wife. Another tattoo. You're 55 for God's sake, not 20. Half a bottle of whiskey. Gold tackies. A hotel room so you can spend the whole day in bed. Have food delivered and waste their water. I am Helene Prinsloe and I'm reading from my essay titled Being Fit While Being Fat. It took me almost 20 years to admit that I like sports and sweating. Even as a young child, I was conditioned to believe that those arenas are reserved for smaller bodies. I still believe that. I've just chosen to ignore it, thanks to feminism and a little help from my friends. My inner battle between being fit and being fat has been carrying on for the longest time. One of my earliest memories is where I am standing on the starting blocks of our school's swimming pool. I am eight years old and I am about to compete in the 50 meter breaststroke, my favorite event on gala day. I'm good and I have been training hard for this. I am so good that I might win today. We mount the blocks, the countdown starts, and I am listening for the gun that is soon to follow. Instead of the bang, I hear a man's voice bellow over the shot. Jump, fatso! As eight-year-old me swam to finish the race, I choked on my tears, crying for reasons I was too young to understand. I did not win that day, or any other day, as it was the last time I participated in competitive sports as a child. Even at that young age, I accepted that swimming pools and hockey fields and tennis courts and all other spaces reserved for sports belong to bodies smaller than mine.
When I think of sportswear, images of fit bodies spring to mind. I imagine willowy women and Herculean men who barely break a sweat. I imagine speed, agility and pride. I imagine anything but a body like mine. When doing a Google search, it turns out that my imaginings are supported. You will be hard-pressed to find a South African sports retailer or international fitness brand who stocks clothing bigger than a size 18. This includes male and female clothing. When you do find them, the material is often not supportive of a bigger body, making it difficult to wear while training. In conversation with a representative of one of the world's biggest fitness brands, I asked a simple question. Why does your company not cater to bigger bodies? The answer came quick and curt. We are an aspirational brand, aren't we? The answer sank like a heavy stone and left me feeling defensive. Aspirational. Aspire. A word that speaks to dreams and desires to the achievement of a goal. Let's talk about those aspirations and how complicated they are. My name is Anelile Kibitlayeko. I wrote the piece called Feminism in the Church. I wrote this particular piece for myself and more importantly for other people who are finding it difficult to identify as both Christian and as feminist. I noticed my contradictions early on in life as an active youth in the church, constantly wondering how it could be that the word of God can love us so much, yet the people who run the institutions hate us, oppress us, and just disregard us as human beings. So in my research, in my reading of feminist literature, in theology, and in reading the Bible, I began to understand three things, and these are the things I've based my essay on. Firstly, Jesus was feminist. I unpack how I came to this conclusion in the essay. Secondly, that Jesus loves me in whatever form that I was made in. So female, male, queer, or otherwise. The last thing is the reason why we find ourselves in institutions that structurally oppress us and are against women is because of patriarchy. The patriarchy that enabled men to lead the church, reign over the word, and as a result, they could translate, transmit, preach in a way that would suit patriarchy's agenda and its ideology. And this is where I re um, have a problem with, in that we are where we are because of patriarchy, not because of God's word. But anyway, what I hope to come out of this essay is a new conversation, not one that says, are you either a Christian or a feminist, but one that transforms the church. The one that ensures that women in the church can freely be feminist one that finds a common ground for women in the church and for women who are in the feminist faction of society. Finding ways, applauding ways, and building new 
um, relationships, unlearning some things, relearning some things to ensure that indeed women come out tops. Thank you. My name is Belinda Mountain and I wrote an essay titled The Most Beautiful Boy the World Has Ever Seen. I'm going to read you a small part of it. Carry these towels for your mother, young man, the cashier says. An 11-year-old girl with shining eyes gets mistaken at the hardware store for a boy. I blush to my toes. Outside in the car park, I cry and tell my mother, I'm never having short hair again. It's all your fault. My mother tells me that if I were a boy, I'd be the most beautiful boy the world had ever seen. Twenty years pass and I am cradling my own baby girl in my arms as I hold my mother's hand and watch her die. Time passes. I forget much about my mother. Her voice, her laugh, but many of her words stay with me. Don't wear grey, it doesn't suit you. Save 10% of your salary each month in a separate account. Never overpluck your eyebrows, they won't grow back. It's my mother I think about as I sit in the hairdresser's chair, years after the fog of grief has lifted. I'm crying as I watch the hairdresser wielding those silver shears and grip the arms of the chair. I tell her to cut it all off. I want to, because I'm ready now. My essay is about a haircut, but it's about so much more than that. It's about becoming a woman, and it's about losing a mother, and it's about raising a daughter. I hope you enjoy it. and I wrote an essay titled I Don't Trust Men. It all started with me saying that I don't trust men. I said this in response to a short conversation about my safety. The person I was walking with was talking about how the Mflanga Promenade felt so safe. I told him that I only felt safe because of all the other people that were running or walking. Specifically the presence of other women, because I don't trust men. I don't know at the time, but this shook his masculine beliefs, because what about the good guys? I'm Louise Ferrara. My essay is called Pissed Off, a tragic comedy in three parts. I wrote this during a time of great change in my life. I wrote that while working again uh, for the first time in almost a year. So in 2018, I was severely burnt out. I was very depressed. It, you know, it was a uh, not quite the depression of 2016, but frankly, just the last several years has not been very good. I finally realized that um, I was not working in any case. I was freelancing at the time. I was not getting any work done. I was struggling even to open my laptop. So I decided that I decided that not working period was better than 
trying to work, not getting it done and feeling anxious about that all the time. I stopped working for 10 months with the support of my family and I watched a lot of comedy, stand-up comedy. And this essay is mostly about that experience uh, and the, the extent to which it really helped to change my life, at the very least improve my life, and how I view comedy and its role in feminism and feminism's role in comedy. I hope it's a little bit funny too. Hello, my name is Tiffany Kugurimova, and I wrote Call Out Culture, the most radical, smartest bitch in the room. So the reason I wrote this was because of the call. I know it doesn't make sense. Everybody wrote this because of the call. You didn't just like start writing this. But I wrote this specifically because of the pushback from the call for living whilst feminists. So I'm in a number of feminist uh, WhatsApp groups from all over the world, Afro-Caribbean ones, specifically African ones, Kenyan ones, South African ones, all sorts, right? And one of the groups, which shall remain anonymous, started tearing the call apart. And I was like, what in the actual hell? Like, I was like, what in the actual hell? And I was like, Okay, so what's wrong with the call? Because somebody started actually tweeting at our lovely leader, Jen, and um, tweeting like, what the hell with this call? Nah, nah, nah. I've been seeing this call spread so wildly, but no like accountability or anything. And just did this long thread. And then because I knew the person I asked in the group, I'm like, dude, why did you do that? And she's like, well, you know, just because we're feminists doesn't mean we just shut up. And I'm like, no, you could have literally asked anyone all of these questions. Also, there's a website answering all these questions. But you just wanted to look like a bad bitch on the internet, didn't you? And we ended up having this, like, huge back and forth. And, like, it got to the point where, like, I was asking these feminists, um, so, like, what could be done better? Oh, they need to pay me to tell me. And I was like, no, I'm now asking because as somebody who does calls, um, there's probably a time when somebody thought that I was sketchy af as well. And then, like, basically, instead of being uplifting and calling in, like, this person and some other people around them just started calling out, calling out, calling out. And when I was, like, answering the questions, and I'm like, guys, it's all there. And also, as somebody who curates, these are the problems, and these are the things you often can't tell folks, right? And also why, as a feminist anthology, you can't pay folks, etc., etc. People did not want to hear it and that's when I realized that sometimes the conversations we have as feminists are not about making the world better uplifting each other sometimes it's about showing that you are a radical bad bitch sometimes it's about tearing down especially our own right tearing down our own in order to show that you're in the know that you're one of these hot twitter folks you know with the with the with the twitter fingers and yeah so basically um As the editors probably know from my first draft, I wrote this in like an hour and I was just furious. And that is essentially why I wrote this entire piece, to defend the end product. I'm Juanita de Villiers and I wrote the essay Finding the Average, Neurodivergence, Queerness and Fitting In. 
I wrote this because I was feeling alienated in many aspects of my life after receiving a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, a late diagnosis that came at age 26 after a major breakdown. So I wrote this about the confluence of ways that I felt that I was other or alien in various areas. So I wrote about the intersection of body image, about queerness, about neurodivergence, I talk about self-harm and the terror that was the 2000s trend of low-rise denim. Uh, So, yeah, here is an excerpt. I am a confluence of things that would not fit in. It's why I hold the label queer so dear. I am queer, I am odd, I am out of place no matter where I go. My body will not shrink to fit and it will not grow to the size that allows me to claim fat as a title to honour. For someone so strange, I have an affinity for the middle ground. I'm not perfectly straight or perfectly gay. I found the term bisexual in undergrad when I was warned never to date one. When I came out, I found that my preference for men meant that I wouldn't be welcomed by many. So not perfectly bi either. Hello. My name is Jared Thompson, and my essay in the Living Well Feminist Anthology is called The Social Dynamic of Penetration. My essay reflects briefly on the sexual roles of gay men, namely what has been termed the top or penetrator and bottom or penetrated in a gay male relationship. In the essay, I discuss the ways these sexual distinctions have taken on stereotypical traits that reflect the heteropatriarchal society in which we live. By this I mean the implication that men who penetrate should necessarily be more masculine and men who are penetrated should be more feminine. I question the rigidity of these distinctions along with the social capital tied to men who only penetrate or the bottom shaming that sometimes occurs in gay male culture. In essence, the essay tries to question the ways gay men oppress themselves and other gay men through inadvertently reproducing structures of patriarchy in their own sexual relations and relationships. The essay advocates for more fluid explorations of the diverse pleasure centers of the male body that aren't tied to static ideas of gender performance. By aligning the male body with the body that is penetrated, and submissive in the sexual act, something very interesting and subversive takes place psychosexually. And for me, the social dynamic of penetration is one way to reflect on issues of power in sexual relations between all expressions of gender. My name is Donna Laby. I wrote the poem, Did You Remember to Say Thank You, as my contribution to the book. The poem is based on an experience I had as a young woman, young girl, actually. At the time, the experience was not particularly traumatic, but it occurs to me that this is a common experience, some an experience that is shared by millions of women across our world, an experience in which older men transgress boundaries and take advantage of young women's tender sexuality. 
when I was writing, I became aware of quite intense feelings of anger and violation that I hadn't been aware of as a child. My wish is that this poem finds resonance and gives voice to the experiences of other women who have gone through what I have gone through. That is most of us. I really hope that we are able to understand that this is not our fault, that we were young and children at the time of such experiences, and that we forgive ourselves for what we enjoyed. Hello, I am Nobantu Shabangu. I wrote the piece, A Decade of Feminism. The piece is essentially about my growth into feminism over the last 10 years and my journey with my hair, my identity as black, as queer, as feminist, and how these, how I've grappled with uh, my relationship with feminism with regards linking it to my hair and the progression and um, cutting it and growing it and going into dreadlocks and just weaving this journey into my into the feminist journey that I went through also with friends um, who we began the journey together as well and we sort of fell apart and we came together again so I will read a little piece of it and the rest you'll have to read in the book a decade ago I cut my hair it was the last year of my teens and the anxiety of entering into my 20s lingered on my mind I was not alone in the fear of aging. My friends and I lamented the passing of our youth on chips and cheap wine in one of our various rooms. We sat languidly like rag dolls piled on a measly metallic single bed, exchanging sighs and laughter. I brushed my head with my hand and a few loose curls fell across my chest. My friend caressed my head too and said, I like it. But my other friends roused into a debate about my short hair. I cut my hair because I felt, at the time, confident in my identity. After years of struggling to reconcile with my sexual identity, I finally felt the courage to be true to myself. Secondly, it was the advent of natural hair trends. For many years, I had been burning my scalp with chemicals to straighten it in an attempt to make it more man manageable and presentable. Losing the illusions of beauty created by popular media, I finally made peace with my hair. And attending university brought with it a freedom to form myself away from the normative and patriarchal norms of the home. I made sure that when I was 18, I went to university as far away from home as possible. And there, I met like-minded people who thought like me and probed the status quo. My friends and I were militant about education, being politically inclined, and breaking new ground in whatever academic spheres we were active in. But labeling ourselves as feminists came with much disagreements. While I lashed onto the label quickly, others cited religious and cultural re reasons for not doing so. They supported the ethos of feminist ideals, but not necessarily the label. Hi everyone, I'm Saska Julius and I'm the author of this is a man's world. I wrote this piece after thinking about a date I went on as a 15-year-old girl and it just made me so angry. 
I'm going to read an excerpt from my essay. You go on a date on Valentine's Day and the boy says his biggest fear is going to jail. Do you know what they'll do to someone like me? You roll your eyes and say, it's male privilege. You have to think about the possibility of getting raped everywhere you go. He says you overthink life. You'll end up alone. The thought of ending up alone comforts you. He goes on to say that periods freak him out. Women shouldn't talk about such things. Pity, you say. Your mother was probably praying to get hers, but got you instead. The date ends on a sour note. I am Aria Salafranca, and I am reading excerpts from my diary, published under the title, Rafia. 4th of March. Revolutions. I met Rafia on Thursday afternoon. I had a smile on my face throughout the day, thinking I was meeting a woman later. We'd arranged to meet at Life Restaurant in Hyde Park, and instead we bumped into each other in the toilets and immediately recognised each other from the photos we had posted online. I think we were both surprised. You certainly don't bump into someone you've been emailing on a dating site if you're straight. Unisex toilets have never quite taken off. At life the conversation flowed, seemingly endlessly and easily. We spoke about our jobs, about travel. Rafia was off to the Arctic soon, planning a night at the Ice Hotel in Sweden, then going right up north to see the Northern Lights. I've always told my partners if they're with me, they have to go with me travelling, she smiled. I shared some of my travel trips. She would still like to see Peru, other parts of South America, as would I. She has a brother married to an Englishwoman expecting their first child. Rafia is originally from KwaZulu-Natal, but moved away in her 20s to study in Pretoria. She's never discussed being gay with her parents, although she's been away with both them and her partners, where she and her lovers have shared rooms. But her parents are older generation, conservative Muslims. It's easier not to discuss it. Sometimes what is not said doesn't exist. She's always known she was gay and has had relationships with women and three long-term relationships, although she went out with a man in university for a year. I asked her about growing up. She said she felt that there was something different about her from her teens, but she was lucky enough to have two angels, a schoolteacher who she was sure was involved with the principal, another woman, as well as an aunt who encouraged her education. And when she left school, the teacher, with whom she had bonded, gave her a letter telling her to be true to her heart. Nothing else was said, and probably the teacher couldn't say anything more. I asked if she'd had any male idol posters on her walls while growing up. She said she'd had pictures of Magnum P.I. played by Tom Selleck on her walls, but she had wanted to be Magnum, i.e. having the chance of being with a woman, not to be kissed by Magnum. Good luck with your trips, she said. I have a trip to Cape Town planned for later this month. I'm glad we met. I was manic when I arrived home. High, pleased, unable to settle, even to eat. Had there been something there? And she was certainly attractive. 
I emailed her the next morning, saying it had been great to meet up. She came back saying she'd enjoyed meeting. Did I want to meet again? She would like it. And I replied yes. It was a whole day before I was able to eat again. To calm down. Hi, my name is Shari Malileke and I wrote the essay Understanding Myself. And the reason I wrote this essay was because I wanted to address how gender identity is very fluid. I think we live in a society that tries to box people's gender identity by categorizing you as either man or woman or female or male or uh, or girl and or boy. And I think that we need to get to an I think society is getting to an age and having those difficult conversations around how gender identity is fluid, just as fluid as sexuality, just as fluid as being a human being. And from a young age, I was always made highly aware of what being a feminine woman is or what being an attractive feminine woman is. It's it's long hair, long nails, makeup, and obviously there's no shame around expressing yourself like that. But there's also so many ways to express yourself as a human being outside of feminine and masculine labels, you know. Especially I was told that masculine um, is short hair, short nails, pants, suits. And I think that as human beings, like to, to box ourselves in these ways can be so dangerous because we raise so many, you know, trans people, transgender people, non-binary people, genderqueer people who understand the fluidity of gender identity and there's no shame without with seeing gender outside of binary and i think from a young age the way my mother saw her body shapes the way i saw my body and i was criticized a lot for playing with the masculine sides of myself but i think that as we have these conversations and acknowledge more the queer community i just thought it was important to write the story as a black queer um, non-binary person because you know non-binary people aren't just white people or queerness wasn't invented by white people but it was also it's always been a part of the black community as well and that there's there's never been any shame with understanding that gender is just how you express yourself and that there's never ever a correct way to be who you are that's what we have for you so thank you so much for listening thank you to the writers for sending their voice notes in taking the time out and thank you to all of you listening in this strange and curious time we find ourselves in we are sending all of you positive vibes and good energy i hope you were able to draw some nourishment from the pieces that were shared today and we look forward to seeing you at the in-person launches and we can't wait for you to get your hands on this book. So if you would like to do that early, you can buy the ebook now on where you normally get your supply. And then the real printed beautiful book will be on shelves as soon as we are out of this lockdown. So see you soon. Take care of yourselves and be kind to each other. Bye.